0: Today, we finish off the third of the great discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. This one is often called the parabolic discourse because it is filled with parables, seven or eight, depending on how you count. But more often, it's called the discourse on the kingdom of heaven because Jesus continually says, the kingdom of heaven can be likened to such and such. Now what does Matthew mean when he says the kingdom of heaven? It's the dominant issue or dominant image in this gospel. It's, that phrase is used 32 times. John the Baptist comes on the scene and says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus is baptized, that is what he declares as well. And it's what he tells his disciples to say. Scripture scholars say that when Matthew says kingdom of heaven... That's a Jewish way of saying the reign of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a sower, a mustard seed, like yeast, a treasure, a merchant, and a net. Can we continue to expand our concept of God's love and mercy? This is the 17th Sunday in Ordinary Time. This is my third year preaching on the 17th Sunday of Ordinary Time. And each year it has turned out for different reasons. I have preached at all the masses this weekend. And those of you who are long-time goers here know that I, the last two years, this is the weekend, I have preached very challenging homilies, very funny homilies, begging you in the month of August to not sit on this aisle so that the new people who start coming can sit there because... You feel comfortable there. That's where we all feel comfortable. So I'm not preaching on that today. But (laughs) next week you can sit wherever you like. But then for the rest of August, try to leave these aisles and the section in the back there open and be wild and crazy and sit over here or over there, okay? Because I have something else challenging to preach about today. Oh, and when somebody comes and if they look unfamiliar, just say, we're glad you're here. That works if somebody's been coming here for 40 years every week. That's still a great way to greet people, but it works for new people too. We're glad that you're here. We believe that Matthew had three sources that he used when he was writing his gospel. First of all, he knew about the gospel of Mark. He also had access to a collection of other sayings of Jesus. And then he also knew about the traditions that had been told by his community for two generations. Matthew combines these three sources in fascinating, overlapping structures. But today is not a day to lecture on chiastic uh, structures. You can read about that on your own sometime. But in the first 12 chapters of Matthew, he takes great liberties in the order that he tells these stories. But then in the middle of chapter 12, he reverts to telling the story in the same order as St. Mark. Why is that? Well, some scholars, including the guy I'm going to cite today, whose name is M. Eugene Boring, and yes, he's a professor, so you can call him Professor Boring, (laughs) has said that this slicing and dicing in the first 12 chapters is done so that when we hear the rest of the story that's familiar to us, we will interpret it in a new way. For Matthew, the thrust of the gospel story is a conflict between two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Satan. So we can think of the Sermon on the Mount, for example, as the instructions he gives us on how to enter the kingdom of heaven. The conflict comes to a head in chapter 12 when the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being in league with the demon Beelzebul. Now, today to us that seems like a kind of ridiculous high point. It seems like a trumped-up charge. It doesn't make any sense. But Matthew's community, we need to think a little bit more about who they were. We often describe them as a group of Jewish Christians, but that label would not have made any sense to them at the time. At that time, Judaism was in a time of great upheaval, and there were a bunch of different factions arguing over the future direction of Judaism. And these groups included the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes, and the Herodians, to name a few. Matthew's community would have been another one of these groups, claiming to understand God's vision for the future of Judaism. And that's why the Gospel of Matthew is both the Gospel that is most favorable in talking about Jews and the least favorable in how it presents Jews. The Pharisees' accusation of Jesus being in league with Satan would have resonated very strongly with Matthew's community because the Pharisees in the years 80 to 90 were probably accusing Matthew's community of being in league with Satan too. With that in mind, let us reconsider today's parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure for which one joyfully sacrifices everything. Likewise, we're told God, the kingdom of heaven, God's reign is like God... Getting, obtaining a pearl of great price, sacrificing everything to obtain us. Each of us is the pearl of great price. Take a moment and think about that. To God, you are the pearl of great price. The parable of the net echoes a theme we hear repeatedly in the Gospel of Matthew. He talks at one point about trees and another point about people, saying we know they're good or rotten by the fruit that they produce. Last week we heard about the weeds cannot be separated from the wheat until the end of the age. Now, what did these parables mean to the Matthaean community? They were devoted to Judaism but rejected by other Jews. Well, it was a startling thing to hear this, to be told that the kingdom of heaven is like a net that catches both good and rotten fish. Members of the Matthaean community would understand this meant they were, their job was to follow the instructions in the Sermon on the Mount. It was not their job to separate the good fish from the bad fish. The kingdom of heaven will likely accommodate some Sadducees, Essenes, Herodians, and Pharisees. God... Will judge the fruits at the end of the age. The kingdom of Satan has been very prominent in the news this month. And the one story that's really resonating with me right now is this fact that in huge swaths of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, gangs are taking control of everything. And children who are refusing to join these gangs when they are invited are facing violence and even death. The murder rate in Honduras right now is higher than it was in Iraq during the 2007 insurgency. Families are desperate. They are sacrificing everything for the treasure in the field, sacrificing everything to try to get their children to safety. Our immigration system in this country cannot accommodate the 50,000 unaccompanied children arriving this year. I think it's been 57,000 have arrived since October of last year. The system was designed to to accommodate about 6,000 children who would arrive on our borders seeking asylum each year. But I I have heard from some people who know, and it was in uh, some of the papers yesterday, most of these children who are coming do have relatives in this country who are taking them in. But the debate we're having right now doesn't seem to line up with Matthew's vision of the kingdom of heaven. For many people, the words immigration reform has become a euphemism for keep them out at all costs. But to God, each child is a pearl of great price. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly commands Israel to treat aliens, widows, and orphans with care and respect. If you've been coming to Daily Mass this summer, this is the summer we hear selections from eight books of the prophets for eight weeks in a row, and we just keep hearing again and again, God says, to test, to see if you are devoted to me, is how you treat the aliens, the widows, and the orphans in your midst. And when Jesus was born, according to the Gospel of Matthew, his parents were forced to flee the kingdom of Satan, represented by King Herod. The church has been adamant through the years. People have the right to cross borders, to protect and to provide for their families. My grandparents came here from Hungary at the beginning of the 20th century in desperation. My maternal ancestors came here from Ireland and Prussia in desperation in the nineteenth, the 18th centuries. Could they have entered this country today with the current laws when lawyers charge several thousand dollars to assist people filing asylum paperwork? We must protect ourselves from those who wish us harm, of course, who are trying to enter the country for bad reasons, But it's a completely different idea to presume that desperate children from Central America will grow up to produce rotten fruit. The immigration problem is complicated, so let's not oversimplify it. We have been instructed about the kingdom of heaven. Let us be like the head of the household who celebrates both the new and the old. Let us pray for the wisdom of Solomon, to address the complexities of the immigration crisis in a practical, humanitarian, and compassionate way.